Welcome to the Food Lens Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Smart, New England food writer and founder of The Not Just Company. And I'm your host, Molly Ford, co-founder of The Food Lens, your online resource for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. On each episode of our podcast, we chat with restaurant industry insiders, digging into business, passion projects, and food trends to see what's shaping the New England restaurant scene. On today's episode, we're catching up with founders Rob Burns and Michael Oxton from one of our favorite local breweries, Night Shift Brewing. Hey guys, before we get started with our interview, I want to tell you about Image Unlimited Communications, a PR agency that cares about restaurants just as much as we do. This Boston-based firm has a unique and effective personalized approach, and they've got the local and national media clips to prove it. With a sharp focus on lifestyle, restaurants, and consumer goods, the agency has the contacts and the hustle to get you the placements that really move the needle for your brand. Whether you're looking for help with public relations, event planning, digital marketing, or social media, Image Unlimited Communications is here to help. Check them out at www.iucboston.com. That's iucboston.com. Hi, Molly. Hey, Catherine. How's it going? It's going. It's going great. Ready to, to talk about beer. Oh, my gosh. I can't tell you. I am... So I'm, like, not a huge beer drinker, but I love Night Shift. Artie is, like, very, very into Night Shift, has been since day one, and we're total fan, like, total fans. I'm, like, so excited <laughs> to have these guys in. I totally agree. I'm not the biggest beer drinker, but I do love drinking Night Shift, and I'm kind of nerding out that we get to, to bring in the founders today, or at least two of the three founders. I know. And ask about their process. I mean, what, what makes their beer so tasty? <laughs> So in addition to loving their beer, they actually started brewing in their apartment in Somerville in 2007. And that's the year that I moved to Somerville. So I'm really excited uh, to talk to them for nostalgic reasons on top of loving their IPAs. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I have a lot of guy friends who brew beer in their downtime, but none of them have turned their beer into the Night Shift brand. So I can't wait to hear how these guys did it and are doing it. Oh my gosh, me too. Yeah, back in 2007 in that first Somerville apartment, one of our neighbors, Kevin, shout out to Kevin Neary, uh, would make these crazy like coffee imperial <laughs> stout beers uh, and they were super, super intense and it really brings me back. But it's so cool to see that that's how a business can get started. Definitely. Welcome, you guys, to PRX Podcast Garage. Uh, we've talked a lot about wine and cocktails on the show, right? Mainly because I yeah. just love wine and cocktails, but we haven't really talked about beer at all. So I'm excited to chat with you guys and dive into this world. Um, you guys started brewing in an apartment in Somerville back in like 2007, right? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Wait, 2007? That's when I moved to Somerville. <laughs> oh, really? Union Square, oh, 2007. Yeah. We were right by uh, Ball Square and Davis Square. Ugh. No wonder you're such no a No wonder fan. I love it. Yeah. And with that being said, I'm just going to. <laughs> uh, Never too early, right? You. Well, yeah, you can't drink alone. <laughs> Thanks for the, the gifts, guys. Yeah. All right, Somerville, 2007, take us back. Yeah, take us back to that time. What were you doing? What was it like? So uh, Rob and I had uh, just graduated from Bowdoin College up in Maine. And uh, our other founder, Mike, uh, was at Philadelphia University. So he was down in Philly at the time. Uh, Rob and I moved to Somerville together, and uh, we were working desk jobs at a software company called Zoom Info. And uh, by night, 
we started homebrewing and uh, we started in like really small batches, little five gallon batches. And we just got like super obsessed. Um, we were trying to buy all the beer possible we could get just to well, drink it, but also to sample it and sort of like get a sense of like what's out there and like how could we improve what's on the shelf. And over like a you know few year period, we just became gradually like incredibly obsessed, started upgrading our equipment and hosting these tasting parties and our apartment basically became like a little microbrewery, uh, all home brewing. And uh, eventually we were just inspired to start a business. I feel like this is like every dude's dream to quit your day job <laughs> and open a brewery. Like, are you kidding me? It was the dream. You made I mean, it sound like it was so dream. easy. Yeah. <laughs> it still is. What was the what was the craft beer scene like back then here? I think what like when we really got serious about opening the brewery, myself and Michael Mara are both from Philadelphia, and myself and Michael Oxen were living in 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 Somerville. We were kind of like, where do we open it? Where do we see the most opportunity? Should it be Philadelphia? Should it be Boston area? And one of the things that we were noticing is like all of, there was lots of good craft beer drinkers and fans in the Boston area, but you go to the bars and there was like all this California beers on tap, and I was like, well, that's kind of weird, like. We have the consumer here, but we don't have the producers. And then it was like, well, as far as urban breweries, there's really only kind of one at the time, Harpoon. I mean, Boston Beer is sort of in in the mix, but not the major manufacturing plant here. Like, could we be an urban Boston brewery? And that's kind of what we set out. And when we finally opened our doors in 2012, there's only about 50 breweries in the state. And today there's about 200. So it's, it's changed quite a bit in that sense. Yeah, it seems to have really taken off over the last several years. I feel like there's breweries opening left and right. It's a crazy crowded space, and I'm really curious. I mean, you guys, it sounds like we're getting in kind of right as this was all ramping up. Did you sort of see the people coming behind you and just ran as fast as you could? Or do you, like, how how have you managed, besides having great beer, <laughs> like, how have you, how have you even mentally managed, like, your strategy with all this other beer coming into the market? I mean, I think, like, we've... We've consistently considered ourselves like our biggest competition, right? So we have to constantly improve ourselves more than anything. So um, usually it's just like, what can we create better, uh, you know, tomorrow, next week, uh, just based on what we're doing already. Um, we definitely monitor the industry a lot, but um, I think we try and take inspiration from what people, other people are doing. And um, usually it's like, well, how can we do that better or differently and make it our own? And I think that's consistently how we've tried to stand out on the shelf, too, is just like, how do we put something out there that no one's ever seen before or tried before, even if it's in like a small little way, just like, oh, that's a, that's a surprise. That's memorable. So a lot of craft brewers, and rightfully so, are really concerned about big beverage coming in and copying them. But it's interesting. You guys have really flipped the script on that, and you're kind of doing what a lot of the big guys are doing, but better. So you have your craft hard seltzer, and you have Nightlight, which is sort of like a nod to Bud Light. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think we've kind of, for since almost the beginning, try to take this stance of like, we use the term internally, like macro nuisance being macro beer, being the bud, the Budweiser's and stuff of like, how can we on a scrappy shoestring budget actually try to compete against the biggest brewers and the biggest CPG companies in the world? And can we do it in a fun and genuine way? And I think one of the kind of first major things we did was start our own distribution company, which was uh, kind of a, a a rebuke to this the, the archaic franchise laws that lock brewers into their wholesaler relationship. And then it was like, okay, what else can we do that's like really 
pokes an eye at it and can we make it feel crafty uh in a way that we are, are proud of it and nightlight's a good, another great example it was our fastest growing beer last year and just and became our best-selling beer as far as volume uh and that was like an idea that we had like three years beforehand of like well, we do like to drink these light lagers, but it kind of pains us to go out and buy them. Yeah, like, I'd rather we, not pay Budweiser. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. No one's telling us what beers we have to make. So the, the brewer team was like, okay, well, we'll just make it. And then like after work, everyone gets two free beers. They're twofers. Uh, and so instead of them drinking beers in the loading dock, uh, they were drinking nightlights in the tap room. That's awesome. Yeah, my dad would always say growing up, and I still haven't convinced him to drink. He still doesn't really like IPAs. He's like a through and through Sam Adams guy, and like, but he would be like, "No daughter of mine drinks Budweiser." Like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure the first time he found beer cans in high school, it wasn't like I'm so, you know, you were drinking. It was like, "No daughter of mine drinks Budweiser." So yeah, I'll have to get him some Nightlight and and see what he thinks. But talk about the distribution network a little bit more because that's huge. Sure. I mean, when we started the business, like we knew nothing, uh, and we started delivering beer at the back of my Subaru Outback. And we did it just because we kind of needed to learn, and it was a way for us to have like a better connection to the beer buyers at the at the stores. And from there, it evolved into like, okay, well, eventually we had two Subarus. That was pretty sweet. With my <laughs> Subaru and Michael's Subaru. Really versatile. Cars yeah. For we had the beer. Outback and the uh, the Forester. The Forester, yeah. Both hanging low. Those suspensions were wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got a, a van, a creepy van, yeah. and that was oh. awesome. <laughs> Pulling up um, to the curb in that thing, like you like, always felt like a psycho. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those boxed vans yes. with no window conversion van. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, but like, what we learned pretty quickly that like it was a lot of value to be that close to the buyer and getting closer to the consumer. It allowed us to kind of have some of the freshest beer in the marketplace, and it was partly because we were just scared of these franchise law. Like, if we sign with the wholesaler and we're locked in, it's essentially marriage with no possibility of divorce. Like this is our baby. If if they decide that they want to stop selling night shift, like what what we have, we're screwed. And um, as we started having these conversations with other brewers, like they're like, yeah, we're we're scared to enter the wholesale business. We'd love our beer to be in bars, but like we don't trust the wholesalers either. Not to say that there's no good wholesalers out there. Um, it's just a very scary thing. And so eventually we're like, well, if we're sort of already been building this for ourselves, let's like make it official. Let's and let's find other like-minded brewers and distribute their beers. And let's get now, some commercial plates for these Subarus and make this a real <laughs> We did eventually. Yeah, I, I still have those commercial plates. <laughs> those come in handy. They are awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Parking yeah. The city. <laughs> it's amazing when I'm going out for dinner. <laughs> so when did you say that the distribution aspect of everything was introduced at Night Shift? We, we officially announced it in like October of 2016. And then we started selling other people's beer Kind of in that spring of 2017, I yeah. think it was like April-ish. Yeah. Um, and that was, we we had been doing it for ourselves since the beginning, so about four years. So we're like, we know how to distribute beer. But it was definitely a little bit steeper of a learning curve than we thought about how to work with other brewers and meet like their needs, objectives, sell their products, learn the stories behind them, manage the inventory. So we made we made plenty of mistakes in 2017. And probably into 2018. And still today, uh, 2020. But yeah, I mean, I think one thing we've learned is like you have to stay really close to the customer to understand like what they want and like how you should be growing your business. Like you, you have to obviously have your own internal goals and like what matters to you and your values. But at the same time, like what your customer wants is 
hugely important in what they think. And, you know, having tap rooms, which is where people can come and actually try our brand and like connect with us has been huge for our success and just <laughs> understanding of the customer. But self-distributing allows us to interact with, you know, retailers, um, restaurants, bars, and like get to know those people really well. And it, it you remove that middleman. If, if, you're, if you're working with a distributor, that, that is the middleman. And because we are that middleman, like we're able to sort of like build our business based on those interactions. And that's like, I mean, they're the customer uh, so much of the time. I mean, ultimately the, the, end, the end customer is the person buying that can on the shelf, but they're the ones putting it there. And so us knowing what they want and what they're hearing, like that feedback loop is like, it's how we're growing. Yeah, I was fascinated when I learned that you guys are doing this. And I was surprised to see that you're not only working with um, brewers and distributing beer, but um, non-alcoholic beverages like Nutty Life, which I love. The um, I just alternative finished dairy. One. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I seen that her a million years ago. That's yeah, so you're working yeah, with Caroline's brands, awesome. brands yeah. like that. And I mean, right? Wine and spirits. Can you tell us about some more of your partners? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, well, in the beginning of 2019, we got an in, uh, import license, which is a whole nother license. I don't know how many licenses we have. But we <laughs> too, have many. <laughs> too many. Too uh, many. And we started importing wine from Europe uh, wow, with a Paris. similar mindset. Like, could we find these small, like-minded producers that have a great product, but like the traditional distribution system just wouldn't ever allow them to succeed? And could, if we gave them even just a little bit of love, that would be really impactful for these 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 producers, and so we that was like a process of like how do we find these, and now we work with a, I think it's like six French wineries and one Italian winery right now. Uh, we work with about three distilleries; they're all in the U.S. and we we have one California wine brand now, uh, and as well as the non-alcohol uh, products. So it's been part of our kind of journey too of of trying to be more than just a brewery and be more of a beverage company, and whether or not we make those beverages ourselves. We want to kind of participate in all categories and, and kind of see and learn as much as we can. Yeah, including coffee. I was this just going to say, yeah. speaking of brewing other beverages, can you tell us about the coffee? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that story started back uh, in our brewery in Everett. Um, I mean, as early as like 2014, um, you know, we'd, we'd be brewing batches super early in the morning and we have this little station, which... Uh, it was like the coffee station and you have like your little pour over set up and like a few other different ways to brew coffee. And, you know, specialty coffee has become like more and more popular just overall in our culture. And so our access to really good beans has grown. And so at that time, people were sourcing, you know, interesting beans, bringing them to the brewery. And we'd like make each other pour overs and debate like who had the best beans. And just like it was just like a conversation starter and a great way to kick off the day. Uh, we'd also argue over like pouring ratios and there were like all these recipes <laughs> up on the whiteboard and it was like, whose do you follow this? The nerd thread is the same for coffee <laughs> yes. and yeah, beer. It's, it's truly, it's, it's so like interesting. you just, there's the morning time nerding out and the yeah. later in the day nerding exactly. out. That's the only Late difference. afternoon, early evening. Yeah. <laughs> and they're both like fermented products. Uh, they both have a lot of the same tasting notes. Like the, the drinking experience is similar. Um, you know, one just has alcohol, one has caffeine. But uh, so yeah, so we got really into coffee then and I think, you know, that was sort of the spark of like, okay, this is interesting. We want to do something here, but we don't know what. We didn't have the resources or time to dedicate to roasting coffee. Uh, fast forward to uh, last year, basically, you know, we decided like, 
hey, we, we, we have a little bit more money to be able to spend on like a new project. Like let's, inv let's invest like 50K in a coffee roaster and actually, you know, dive into that business and really invest in it uh, and, and try and like connect with customers that, you know, want something in the morning that can be from a craft producer that's local. Um, so, you know, we, we started that, we bought a roaster. Uh, we've st we have a small team that's like exclusively dedicated to coffee. Uh, and we're just we're super focused on a lot of the same stuff we are in beer, which is just like freshness, quality, variety um, and accessibility, I think, is a big one for us, which is like, how do we make the coffee industry and craft coffee um, interesting and accessible to people that like don't necessarily want to go like heavy on geek out? Like, I don't know all those terms, but like I do want to try something better than, you know, what's down the street at you know, I don't want to. So Bash night shift yeah. cold brew in a can is coming soon, I assume. We're absolutely exploring that. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. big is your team? The coffee team is small. I mean, I'm sort of heading it up, and then our GM is Rob's wife, Rory. Um, we have a lot of, like, interesting fam familial stuff within our company. Uh, so she runs the coffee business. Uh, with uh, we have a head roaster, uh, Rob Rodriguez. And sorry, your whole team because you uh, have 220 team. people. Wow. Across oh, kind of all. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciated. Um, I went into Lovejoy Wharf uh, last night, and I was tasting beers, obviously, but I was also reading more about the coffee aspect of Night Shift, cool. and I liked the the flavor wheel you oh, guys nice. talk about. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it, for me, it just made it a little easier to grasp what's going on in my coffee. Totally. Yeah. So the flavor wheel is basically broken up into, well, ours is three different flavor components. I think typically when you see a coffee flavor wheel, it's like. 200 different flavors or 65 different flavors. It's really overwhelming. It's a little overwhelming <laughs> if you're like new to the coffee drinking I'm not experience. even caffeinated yet and I have to think <laughs> yeah. of Right, right. <laughs> Show me that after I've had my coffee. Um, so we were like, let's just go super simple. And, you know, very basically, you can kind of break coffee into, uh, you know, three different areas is what we, we think. Uh, you know, you sort of have like your cocoa, roasty, um, chocolatey flavors. So that's the cocoa part of the wheel. Um, there's fruity, which is speaks for itself. And then like herbal floral, which is the other part of the wheel. And so we have some color coding that we use just to make it accessible. And then three different terms just to make people sort of feel like, okay, I can get into this really quickly and understand it. Uh, and that, I, I think what's great about that is it like, it provokes a conversation because then they can go to the barista and say like, hey, I'm ready to talk about this. I understand it. Like, tell me more. As opposed to like, I'm overwhelmed. I feel intimidated. I don't want to ask questions. That's like a conversation stopper. Totally. And it, we also too have the cool kind of breakdowns of what like a latte is in a, a simple oh, yeah, visual thing. We were kind of amazed that people like, go their whole life ordering a latte and don't really understand like what's in it or the ratio of milk to steam milk to espresso and so we, we just kind of oversimplified it and made these charts so like I, sometimes people really are, are buying mostly a milk drink and not a coffee drink and they don't even realize it um, which is fine if that's what you want but you know like for me personally one of my favorite coffee drinks is the cortado which is basically a 50-50 split of espresso and milk and i think that's like the golden ratio but because <laughs> uh, i'm not a big milk fan just generally uh but i think i saw a, a spicy yeah. cortado on your menu that sounds incredible yeah. it's like a cayenne um rim is that right yeah that's right yeah i love yeah, it's one of the specialties oh yeah every I need to uh, try that. every month our our coffee team our barista team is tasked with just coming up with like two 
like monthly specials. And so that's just what we feature uh, in addition to whatever else is on the menu. And so what we're trying to do is kind of mimic what we're doing on the beer side, which is like constant innovation, like some mainstays, but also stuff that like rotates and feels exciting. And, you know, people just, they, they love participating in that kind of engagement. I want to talk about the rotating a little bit. It's so interesting because it seems like you guys really are dialed in on who your consumer is. And now you're just like meeting all these different use occasions. You have like, you know, the nightlight for after you are off the slopes or like watching a right. game and then you have the double IPA for when you like really want to get serious about it. And the <laughs> coffee. That's, one, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the coffee. Um, so, so clearly you have this dialogue with your consumer and you showed us before we came into the studio these sort of unmarked uh, cans called Batch and some very interesting data collection on the back and I'd love to hear about what you guys are doing there. Yeah, uh, yeah. so we have this series called the uh, the In Development series and so it's sort of like our Not way Not Batch, In Development, sorry. But it says Batch 1. Okay. So you saw, you're right. Um, and so basically th that's our opportunity to brew really small batches of beer uh, and we label them with this, this sort of like standard, almost template looking label. Uh, and it's all about liquid testing. So what we're trying to do is put out liquid into these cans, sell them to consumers at the taproom level. Um, sometimes they hit wholesale shelves too. But basically, it's all about getting feedback from people uh, and iterating. So we'll do like, you know, batch one of a IPA, batch two, batch three. And like that's the name of the beer is just like in development, batch one, batch two, batch three of the IPA. And then we ask people to go online. There's a little link on the label or a QR code and fill out a quick survey, give us some feedback. And that allows us to take what's, you know, very, very hopefully objective information uh, and make a decision on like, is this liquid good enough to turn into a flagship uh, or upgrade it to some larger volume? Um, the can art is like very generic on purpose. And you kind of notice that uh, to basically not influence people with the can art, you know, because a lot of people buy based on the label. And we're trying to get people to really give us their opinions based on the liquid. Yeah, I think it's about putting quality first and then cool branding layered on top, yeah. not the other way around, because that happens in the industry too. Like really cool art, and then the liquid and just kind of right. falls I was flat. Tricked. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think you guys are nailing both. Welcome to capitalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Catherine, I have some exciting news. Remember our season one sponsor, Weinster. Yes, how could I forget? They curate great wines from small producers in the U.S. You browse their collection of unique, hard-to-find wines, and then they ship it straight to your door with fast, cheap delivery. Yep, that's right. But the exciting news is that they're officially opening their doors to their showroom in Seaport this spring. What do you mean a showroom? Can you buy the wine there? Well, you can purchase wine and join the wine club in the showroom, but you can't walk out with wine. They always ship orders direct to your door. Convenient, right? They host small groups interested in learning more about Weinster and the wineries in their portfolio for wine consultations at no cost. An expert wine consultant will lead the group through a curated menu of five wines and educate the group on each pour and the amazing small producers that make them. Guests will also learn about the many ways to purchase these typically hard to find wines, either by the bottle, through the wine club, or with many gifting options on the Weinster site. Um, that sounds amazing. When are we going? I think we're overdue for a wine date now that I'm not pregnant. Totally agree. I can't wait to check it out with you. The complimentary 90-minute wine consultations are by appointment only at the showroom, so let's get on it. If you're interested in learning more, head to www.weinster.com. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R.com. So I was, you know, browsing the menu last day, and there's just, you guys are doing so many different beers now. How many... 
how many different types of beers do you have? Oh, <laughs> man. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. I never do. It's a nonstop flow. Uh, I think like on average, we put out a couple beers a week and then some as they the batches get consumed, they go away. At any given point, we're probably like distributing under the Night Shift brand, usually about eight or 10 products at a given time. Uh, and over the course of the year, it, it could, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. Um, and some of them go away uh, like seasonally. Uh, so it, it kind of varies, but I think usually in a given year, we'll put out well over 100 beers. Uh, and we're like you mentioned earlier, the tap rooms are just such a great place to kind of get that consumer feedback. Like if something's bubbling up as like the best selling beer, like week and day and day, week and week, like, okay, there's something onto this. You got to listen. Uh, yeah. Like how do we figure out how to scale it up? Because sometimes at the small batch level, it's very easy to to do some really cool stuff but then if you're like oh god we need like a thousand cases of this it becomes much more challenging yeah and the tap rooms too i would say have like 20 to 30 beers on tap a lot of them being like very very small batch so you kind of have like what's on shelves at liquor stores is like usually eight to ten what's at our tap room usually like 20 to 30 a lot of stuff you won't see outside of that location what does the creative process look like before we get to the point where we're getting this data that says, all right, this is a beer that we want to scale up? Like, what is the actual brewing creative process like? As a cuff, I'm very curious. <laughs> I would say there's like a couple different paths that happen. So one of them is definitely what we kind of refer to as like brewer's choice. That's like anybody, like there's tanks in the brewery that are just free reign, like Anybody can come up with anything. They went on a trip out west. They tried a cool beer. They want to recreate something similar. Or they love, like, an esoteric style that, like, has no consumer demand for it, but they want to brew a batch of it because uh, their birthday's coming up. Like, So there's that, like, level of freedom. Then I think there's the, okay, we we this beer is really successful in the tap room. Let's now figure out, like, how to put the label on it, how to how to market it. Can we price it right? Uh, and then I think maybe the third track, you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, is like, we think there's a gap in the market or there's a, a consumer problem that isn't being met. And like, let's figure out how to solve that. And then we kind of work from that standpoint. So sometimes I feel like we go from liquid first. Another point is like, we go from consumer problem first. Um, and yeah. they all kind of meet. Totally agree. Interesting. Sorry to interrupt you. Do you, have, <laughs> do you have activist brewers who are like better at presenting their case than others? That's an interesting question. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I think, think there must be. There's got to be some politicking behind closed doors. Well, like, I think neither of us really get to the nitty gritty of the recipes anymore. Sure. We're, it used to be all us, which was yeah overwhelming. It's like one of the things that we definitely learned early on is like we we're not the masters of everything and. There's oftentimes people better than us, and if we can hire them uh, and empower them, that they'll do a, that we'll be in a better place. Uh, so, like brewing beer was neither of ours uh, end strongest of the day. Suit. Yeah. Strong suit, yeah. But like I think of you know on the flavor side, I'm usually like talking to the brewers, like, hey, I think this the aroma needs a little more punch, or hey, can we dial down the bitterness, or hey, I'm getting this kind of like earthy note, like what's causing that. Uh, I think it's got to be more citrusy or floral or tropical and, and then working with the team. And the, they usually are just like, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, try the next back in two weeks. And you're like, okay. Like, I, I don't know what they changed, but somehow <laughs> it comes out better. It's <laughs> alchemy. I, yeah. I would just add to, like, um, I just think it's a good person to highlight is uh, our uh, the head brewer of Lovejoy Wharf. Our Boston location is Anna. Um, and she's an example of someone who started with us actually as a volunteer uh, back in – 
2012 or 13, like earliest, early days. We had a brew crew. People would come in sometimes, and it was all volunteer work. They didn't get paid. They got some free beer at the end of the night. Um, and she was one person who uh, started with us really early. I don't think she got paid anything for a year, and finally we were able to take her on full time. Um, but she she was someone who I would say like consistently showed like creative interest in the brewing process, worked her way up from basically like literally a volunteer to she's now head brewer of Lovejoy Wharf and is like responsible for you know a, a huge majority of the innovation that's happening there. And at any given time, I would say some of our best beers uh, are being brewed by her over there. So that, I just think that's a cool insight into like how. The creative process started with you know someone like her, and now you're seeing stuff that she's made hitting liquor store shelves, uh, where you know it's a recipe that we decided to turn into a much bigger batch. Definitely, and you know I I guess I would consider myself not I mean a, a beer snob just in that I don't enjoy um, plainer beers. I don't enjoy Bud Light. I don't enjoy Coors Light, uh, which my friends drink a lot of, but I am a huge fangirl of Night Shift because you guys have a lot of beer with a lot of interesting flavors. Um, could you tell us a little bit about maybe one or two of your more popular beers that are loaded with flavors you might not expect in a beer? Or at least, you know. I'll take one, I'll take one. Uh, I mean, one of our OG beers was is Viva Havanera. Uh, nice. uh, is that where you're going? No, I, was, I got one. All right, cool. Uh, and so that, <clears throat> that was... When we originally started, like I think our mission statement was something along the lines of like culinary inspired beers to create like memorable moments, and that really meant like we didn't want a beer, a simple beer like you were just talking about, uh, and so we looked to draw inspiration from cuisines, other beverages, and and play around with fun ingredient combinations. and And one of the original ones was Viva Habanero, which was a rye ale with agave nectar and habanero peppers. Uh, and that quickly became like a cult following just because it was so unique and so different. Uh, it's no longer like sort of Regular, regularly yeah. available, but we it has such a like a, a unique cult following. And I think we hear I think I hear more often than not, like for a lot of people, that was the first beer that they were like, there's something different going on at, with those night shift guys. Like they're making something weird over there. And <laughs> I'm not sure I totally like it, but like I'm, I, I'm intrigued to try more. Uh, and so we bring it back usually like once or twice a year as kind yeah. of a throwback kind of playing around. But that's definitely one of the more unique ones from the early People days. People love that. Yeah. That's like, yeah. The first time I thought about the owl was something different. The owl is our logo. Um, to anyone listening, you guys obviously know. Um, the other, I was going to talk about Whirlpool, uh, which is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from Viva. Um, and I think it's unexpectedly surprising or unexpectedly flavorful. Uh, and I think it's a surprise because it's a American or New England style pale ale and it's 4.5%. And I think people don't really expect like huge amounts of flavor from a pale ale. Um, and it's this beer that we actually brewed in a tiny batch is almost like a side brew back in, I think, 2014. And it was like a forgettable little thing that we were like, we'll see if this comes out okay. And it, we just tried a different process in the in the brew, and it's basically the whirlpool process is where we made some technique changes. Uh, that's where it gets its name. And it flew out of the tap room in like a couple of days, and we were just like, whoa, what happened there? 
And since then, it's become pretty much our, our flagship beer. And it's this pale ale that just like packs a huge punch of like citrus and peach, really full body. And so for like a 4.5% beer, I hear a lot of people go like, I'm shocked that it's that low ABV and that it has that much flavor because like I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Are you sure there's no fruit in this? Yeah. Are you, people always say like, no, there's got to be peach. Like there's got to be <laughs> orange in this. And we're always like, no, it's just like... It's got like the right recipe, uh, and it's one that whose recipe almost hasn't changed since the beginning. Um, but that one's full of flavor, but like very light. But, but I, I would just add too that it uses a slightly unique brewing process for it, and our brew house is like custom designed to be able to brew this beer. Uh, and uh, we just we just installed a new brew house uh, in October, and it was made by this German company who they're very traditional lagers. German style beers and they were like you know I can't do a good German accent so I'm not going to try but they're like they're like this does not make sense like this this is not how you make beer you like, cannot do this you cannot do this like that we can make it but we 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 think this is a bad idea and we're like this is what we want this is how we'll make it yeah that's we, not good yeah <laughs> that was a good German accent thank you yeah. as much as I got as much as you'll get out of me yeah that's funny the fight in my house is always, I always pick Whirlpool and my husband always picks Santilli. Um, but I'm curious, like the New England style IPA was such a crazy sweep of the beer world. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not like a big beer geek, but I, I, I do know that much. And funny enough, I don't really like the West Coast IPAs, which I was surprised about. But what do you think is the next New England IPA? Like, yes, Sour is having a moment, but I, I, it, there has to be something, you know, coming. I mean, it- I mean, it's it's a nice little transition to what I have in my hand, but like hard seltzer, I would say, is one of the next big things growing. I mean, I think everyone knows at this point, but, um, you know, this this would sort of fall on the spectrum of what Rob was referring to as more like market consumer driven from us first, um, where we, we, we noticed that the trend was sort of spiking for hard seltzer. And we were like, how do we make something that we're proud of? Um, neither of us were hard seltzer drinkers at all. Uh, back when we started exploring this in 2018 and, for about a year, we were making hard seltzer recipes at our brewery and just dumping them because they just tasted terrible. And so we were like, we're going to try and get this right because there's an interest there, but we're not going to put out a product that we're not proud of and that we wouldn't drink. Um, so for a long time, we wanted to bring hard seltzer to people. We had nothing good to bring out. And then finally, like, and I think it actually started somewhat with some Lovejoy stuff, but uh, between our Lovejoy team and our Everett team, we ended up just making some process changes that produced this product that, you know, it's close to what I'm drinking now. And we released a batch, people loved it, and we've just kind of like iterated from there. And now we have Hoot, which is our hard seltzer, and uh, we're hoping for big things for it for 2020. Were you, were you nervous at all? Because even if it's really good, <laughs> I mean, you guys have a lot of cred right and like you're kind of Very putting nervous. yourself out there like i'm sure your investors were psyched but like it was a question you we know? tossed around i think yeah i think as we sort of pushed the boundaries of like i think one of the things we noticed a few years ago is like craft breweries like put themselves into this kind of confined box of like this is the type of beers we make most of them have a ton of flavor or use like crazy ingredients and like that's what craft beer is and i think we started to think like well there's a whole nother like world of beer and some of it, you know, might be shunned upon uh, like Bud Lights and stuff like that. But like there is a consumer there that could probably choose a better version, but that doesn't want a sour beer or something like with habanero peppers in it. Right. And so like how do we start breaking down those walls and try to touch those consumers that that want better in those categories but 
craft brewers are kind of scared to take the chance yeah. on those because it feels inherently uncrafty. And I think that's like, I mean, we definitely, from the nightlight to the limelight to the hoot, have all been a, a series of products that are, people are like, oh, I don't know if Night Shift was craft anymore. It's like, well, you're welcome to think that, but like we can go into some of the recipes and some of the process that make our products different than the the global brewers. And at the end of the day, like it's still the same three founders. We haven't taken another dollar of investors' money since the day we started. Like we're we're just out here to try to to have fun and make some cool products that we're that we're really proud of. And yeah, if you don't want to buy hoot, don't buy hoot. We still make a killer double IPA and <laughs> some great sours. So yeah. e- even internally, we had some people that were just sent, you know, just like, I, I don't want to do it. Like, I don't believe in this. Oh. Like, this isn't night shift. Um, and I can go back actually to some surveys we did back in 2018 where it was like, do you think night shift should make a hard seltzer? That was like 80% of our staff were like, I don't think so. Like, no. Um, and we were like, okay, interesting feedback. Like, we're not going to put one out right now uh, for various reasons, that including. Uh, but like, we're going to continue to try and make something really good and maybe we'll convince them. So fast forward to our staff party a few weeks ago, you walk around that room, half people in that room are drinking hard <laughs> seltzer. Like there were hoots everywhere. Hard and, seltzer, nightlight and limelight. Yeah. And these are people, a lot of people that like were like, absolutely not. And I think, you know, two things, the industry slightly changed and flavor profiles change over time for anyone. But also we were able to put out products that I think people were like, oh, wow. Okay. We did make something that's really good and it doesn't taste like, you know, the crap that some of the bigger guys are making. We, we, I, I watched your promo video that I you guys have on it. your website um, about who, and I was definitely giggling. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's pretty good. one of the three yeah. of us. Yes. <laughs> I have to see it. Yeah, you have yeah. to watch it. I'll have to I post it, it on social too so people yeah. can see it. We had so much fun. <laughs> and you only released this uh, last September, I believe. Is that right? Is that right? September, October. Sounds about right. Yeah. So pretty recently. Yeah. And I mean, I'm excited to try it. I haven't tasted it yet, but personally, my problem with a lot of hard seltzers are that like they taste kind of like fake or like chemicals. (laughs) That was our biggest issue with that. Yeah, I really don't enjoy that taste personally. What what is the alcohol that's in it? Is it grain? This one's for, oh, uh, I thought you were asking ABV. Uh, It's made with dextrose, which is a type of sugar. Uh, And so it's it's just, it's technically under... Hooch. (laughs) Yeah, it's technically considered uh, a beer under the federal law. Uh, so it's it's mated by breweries. It's made in our brewery, uh, but it's just instead of using barley, it uses sugar, and and it ferments. The sugar creates kind of some challenges with yeast health and yeast viability, which 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 is partly why it took us like forever to kind of figure it out. We didn't have like the the highly specialized equipment that some of these big pl- players use, and when those big players make their hard seltzer it does have a lot more harsher of kind of like a bite uh and that's that's kind of down to the production method and like they actually use all this like post fermentation like filtering and stripping process to try to like clean it up um because they're doing a much more like industrial creation of alcohol where we think you know similar to all their products like we took a more craft approach of like how do we make this a little bit more softer a little bit more delicate and like some of the examples of how we got there was like, well, we could use a wine yeast, which will give it a little bit of a softer feel. It gives it a little bit slightly fruity esters. Um, the big players will basically brew like almost like a mini vodka. That's super strong alcohol. And then they water it down. When you do that, you create like these 
ester profiles that are, are pretty aggressive. Sorry, what's an ester? Can you just tell for us? Uh, so like esters are like kind of like they're all, you can often smell them. So they'll be in like almost any product. I think technically like any beverage product yeah. that you can smell. Um, but sometimes like the most extreme in beer esters, like a good ester is like in a Hefenweizen, that banana or clove smell, that's an ester that was produced by the yeast during fermentation. There's some bad like ester production if you if you had like kind of a dirty brewing process or or the yeast that you pitch were like home not brew healthy. Yeah, that we've made a lot. Yeah, like I'm gonna taste... feel so sick after this. Thank you. <laughs> like rubber Thank bands you. and stuff like that. <laughs> you get some of these other unpleasant sounding flavors. Uh, but yeah, so they, we decided like, hey, instead of like brewing it really high, which is way cheaper to do, and watering it down later. Um, what if we brewed it just at the lower four percent and made a much more delicate uh, product? And that's, you know, those are, and then the flavorings are, are we can't say it or or it's organic, but it technically is organic. So we're using higher quality flavoring. So kind of like we start chipping away at like all these different pieces of the puzzle until we kind of get to something that like we can stand behind and we feel that it tastes better and is better. Right. Um, I love, I love it, too, just because, like, brewery culture is such a thing, especially, like, I have little kids, and it's such a wonderful way to be able to socialize. But I have people in my life who have celiac. That's um, the other big And thing. so it mm-hmm. sucks when Definitely. you're like, oh, well, you should come, but, like, there's nothing you can drink. And whether <clears throat> you just choose not to have gluten, and I won't go on a tirade about that, <laughs> or you actually are celiac, uh, that's awesome that people can participate, you know? It's great for us, especially at the taproom level, because we have a lot of people that want to come in and try uh, our products, but they don't drink anything with gluten or they want to host an event, but a bunch of their relatives won't drink anything with gluten. Uh, for a long time, we couldn't offer a solution that had alcohol in it because we can only serve what we make. And so at the taproom level, it was like, it's it's beer or water. Uh, and now that we have hard seltzer, it's like, oh, great. I have a solution for that problem. Yeah. And I, I think we're still like at the holiday party too. We had just put out a small batch of the hard seltzer where we, we actually use real Pinot Noir grapes and made this sort of like rosé looking seltzer that was like this beautiful pink color. That was and everywhere, just, yeah. And just had like this like great, like true fruity wine character to it, but like insanely drinkable. Like everyone was like, holy crap, am I basically drinking like <laughs> sparkling red wine with no alcohol? <laughs> Wait, is and that for sale? Is that something? Yeah, I feel like I was actually like this. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to a bachelorette party this weekend, and I feel like that is the drink. Well, you know, everyone, like the consumers coming to the taproom, are like, "Is this not in cans?" And we're like, "We were kind of scared. Like, we didn't know if any, like, if it would taste good, if people would like it." And now we're like, "Oh man, maybe we should do one with like Sauvignon Blanc grapes and make kind of like a white version." Yeah. Could we do one that's like different, uh, different varietals of grapes, like? Like, that was, like, an inkling of idea that we played around with. I think it was mostly driven by, like, let's have something cool for the New Year's Eve party. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> always something like that. And now it's like, oh, my God, could we scale this up? Um, so this is not how White Claw makes their seltzer, if no. anyone's wondering. No. They don't <laughs> put on the limb and just say, <laughs> safe to say. That's not goofy little questions that, like, spark this idea and end up, you know, in a can in front of you. And, I, I mean, I also think, like, you know, the... At the end part of sort of that creative process is also like how do you make it look like the the vibe and experience you want for that product? And that's like how do you come up with the label? Um, and like for this one, it's like we wanted to do this like slightly urban, kind of funky, creative like spray paint look. And that's what you see on the can today. But again, that's sort of like, you know, how do we how do you create sort of the personality of this liquid? And I think that's like, you know, our stamp of like basically our, our creative process ends in you know what you see on the can. 
Definitely. I think you guys like bring your A game with your creativity on your cans all around. They're beautiful. They're colorful. I mean, they really grab your attention. But I actually don't know anything about the owl. Can you tell us about oh, yeah. the owl? Um, yeah, the owl, uh, 2009, uh, we were we were sort of like established as home brewers, right? And like bottling stuff and putting them into um, bottles of other breweries' beers, right? So we'd you know, put our stuff in like a shipyard bottle and give it to friends or Harpoon or Sam Adams because you just recycle bottles. And I think a lot of the time it was just like this like half ripped looking label and our friends were like, this is nice, but like it'd be great if like, you put a label on here that was like your own, you know, even though you're not selling it, like don't want it to look pretty. And so we were like, yeah, totally, let's, let's do that. So uh, we were like, we need a logo. We kind of identified ourselves as night shift brewing back then because we were or working by day, brewing by night. So that was like our in-house name. And so I spent uh, like four days just drawing owls because I, I, I was kind of thinking like nocturnal animal. Uh, I can make it look kind of like a hop. So it's a hop owl. Uh, and so I think I drew like 200 really bad owls that like I hated. And then finally just like one hit. And I was like, showed it to Rob. And he was like, that's sweet. Let's throw it on the next batch. And so we printed them out, shared them with friends. Everyone was like, cool. Like you got a cool logo for your little, you know, goofy operation. <laughs> um, and that was it for a while until suddenly it became a business. And we were like, hey, like we don't have to put work in to get a logo. We have something. Or a uh, lot of money. Like a lot of people spend on yeah. logos and branding. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When when Michael first pitched the owl, uh, without seeing any drawing, I was like, I don't know. I, I, oh yeah. I was I That's was right. like, I'm skeptical. Like I don't know if we want an animal as a logo. Like even though it wasn't super serious at the time, I was like, I don't know. I'm not into it. And then he's like, Give me a few days and like you'll change your mind. I was like, Okay, I'm open to it. And then he drew the logo. I was like, Yes. Also, I just want to say. When I pitched you the idea of the owl, I think your answer was, what, like a thing that just says, hoot? <laughs> and the funniest part about that is that we now have the owl on a can of hoot, which is just perfect. It, like, yeah, it completes the yeah, story. James and Armin. The universe works in mysterious were, ways. <laughs> yeah, when we first announced hoot, some of our friends that lived in the apartment with us texted, group texted yeah, us. That's and right. It was like, wasn't that, yeah. is that from when Rob said, like, what, are we making a stupid logo with hoot? <laughs> I was like, no, we did not even like. <laughs> Although it was, I did come up with it. Maybe somewhere in the back yeah. of my head, I was like inspired. As for our listeners, uh, anyone who likes beer or, you know, just interested in learning more about it, tasting different favorite flavor profiles, uh, do you guys have any favorite breweries uh, in Boston other than Night Shift or New England? I mean, you know, my easy answer would be like Allagash is like. The, I think everyone who likes beer should go up there in Maine. Um, they're doing an amazing job with their beers, their brewery. It's probably like one of the best tours you can take of breweries in the country. Uh, so they're one that like, I mean, I go regularly and, you know, <laughs> I own a brewery and, you know, have been there already once. And it like still keeps me interested every time I go. Are they in Portland? They're like right outside. Yeah, they're effectively in Portland. Okay. I've yeah. actually never been there. I definitely... We'll put that on my list. Totally worth it. Well, and if you if you go to Allagash, there's like yeah. three other breweries on the same street that are much smaller, so you can kind of see some of the next up and coming, and it's kind of a cool area because uh, Main Beer Company was on that street, and then they like sold their space to a new up and coming, and Bissell Brothers was in that space, and then they sold their space. Uh, so like, it's been a space that like successful breweries have graduated from, and they've all kind of like grown. I don't want to say in the shadows of Allagash, but like yeah. under the wings of Allagash yeah. maybe because I, I know Allagash is super supportive of other craft breweries and has always lent a hand. Yeah. 
Well, you guys obviously have a lot going on. You're doing so many different beers, coffee, seltzer. Is there anything else on the horizon that we you can tell us about in 2020 or even further away? You heard it here first on the Food Lens. <laughs> Breaking yeah. news at the Food Lens and Night Shift. <laughs> I think the biggest project for us is opening a brewery in Philadelphia. Uh, so we signed a lease at, uh, at the end Very of last cool. year. And kind of like what we talked about in the beginning, when we were originally designed between Philly or Boston, like now 10 years ago, uh, we've now had the opportunity to kind of return the home, so to speak. And kind of the goal is to basically recreate what we've done here in, in Massachusetts in a whole new state uh, with a whole new facility and kind of create the same site, type of atmosphere, the fun tap room, the very diverse mix of beers, and really not just ship beers into the market, but actually be like an active participant in the community and get to know people and we're really looking forward to that, and hopefully the tap room will open this year. But as we know, these never go according to plan, so... <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's the big project on the horizon. Um, there's always stuff that's changing in our world. I think, like, what doesn't change is that, like, we continue to own and operate the company. Rob and I own, and Mike own, like, 80% collectively, and the rest is friends and family. And I just think us staying fiercely independent has been a huge part of, like, how we've been able to like, d direct our own growth, and I think how we'll continue to sort of grow and you know connect with customers who really want to support a brand that is independent. I know you guys are beer guys, but we always ask people a rapid fire round of questions at the end of our show. So I'd love you each to name your favorite Boston dumpling. Uh, dumpling Daughter. That's, that's my dumpling spot. Dive. I was going to say, living in Davis Square, nice. Sly Goes was our go-to dive. Uh, I was going to spend plenty. Maybe I'll throw in pub. I think it's just called pub. <laughs> that's uh, amazing. The pub. In uh, Ball Square. Okay. Uh, dessert? Lyra, our, our baker at Lovejoy, is making this beer Twix that is so good. And she oh, uses beer in the caramel and then like a little bit of salt on the top. It's just, have you I had think, those yet? Yeah, yeah. Like, they're so good. They're ridiculous. In, uh, in Ball Square, Lindell's uh, oh, bakery. Lindell's. Was, oh, yeah. Was yeah. Another Make a good black favorite. and white. Yeah, those half moons or whatever they call them. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Like and a hungover brunch at, uh, was it, Sound Bites? And oh, then going yeah. to Lindell's and getting like a cake and then just Epic. watching TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Taking me right back to 2007. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. And lastly, date spot. Select Oyster would be oh, one. I, I love Select Oyster. Awesome. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Hi, guys. Catherine here. I know you're used to hearing me talk about restaurants and my human babies and occasionally my fur babies, but I want to share a little bit about my other baby, Not Just Company. I started Not Just to help you eat better at home using modern pantry staples like our crazy delicious flagship product, Not Just Pasta Sauce. It's made with 10 veggies, has no added sugar, plus it's vegan and gluten-free. But the best part is it helps you get a healthy, tasty dinner done fast. On the nights you aren't hitting the Boston restaurant scene, of course. Imagine coming home from work, popping open a jar, adding a few fresh ingredients, and sitting down to shakshuka or quinoa chicken meatballs or chana masala before you've even finished your first glass of wine. Each pack of sauce comes with recipe cards, and I promise you'll quickly be making meals you love, food that you'll actually enjoy cooking, even if you're brand new to the kitchen. I'm kicking off 2020 by offering TFL podcast fans 20% off their first order with the promo code FOODLENS20 at notjust.co. That's FOODLENS20 at notjust.co. This episode was produced by Isaac Price Slade. A special thanks to the folks at the PRX Podcast Garage. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with friends and family. Your help means so much to us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show and check out thefoodlens.com for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston.